heading into for the next six weeks. Uh, while John is away on vacation, um, I get to set him up for whatever is going to happen next. He just has to deal with it. So I'm pretty excited about today. Um, I need lights because I can't see. I just realized it was dark. Perfect. I, that's better. Sorry, guys. Um, so we're heading into this, this uh, series called Believe, and it, what we want to do is we want to actually talk to you guys about some of the things in our Constitution, which I know sounds super exciting. Um, however, they are super important and have major implications on our life. Uh, my goal today is not to do this academically, but to do it in a way that hopefully touches your heart at least a little bit. Um, I have the privilege today of, I don't want this around, sorry, intrusive thoughts so bad, um, of talking to you about the basis of our beliefs, no pressure, right? Um, and that is the scriptures. Um, I'm, I'm going to be telling you all about the Bible in the next 30 minutes. Okay, I don't believe it either. But before we dive into that, I want to share with you two really quick stories, um, things that have happened to me recently that, that have been based around our views of the Bible. Um, I have changed the names to keep everyone safe because, you know, it's the right thing to do. Um, so the first conversation was, was with a woman named Sarah. Um, and Sarah is very much into science and this new thing um, that she believes you know, evolution. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, and she's also very into a progressive view of the world, which is really easy to do when you deny that there is a God. And she said to me in a conversation, I can't believe you listen to a book that hasn't changed in 2,000 years. And honestly, this was the first time that I'd ever gotten a statement like this. Most of the time, people are trying to argue with me that the Bible has changed over the past 2,000 years. Um, so it was kind of a, a different conversation, right? And I thought, how great is it that we get to build our lives on something so sure that it has not changed in 2,000 years? Something that doesn't need to keep up with culture. And I know that's a big statement. We're going to get into it in a minute, I promise. The second was with a woman we'll call Madison. Madison worked at camp with me. Um, and one day I was walking across campus, and I saw Madison with her Bible open in front of her. And I have the habit when I'm at camp of saying, like, hey, what are you studying? Because I'm just, I want to know. I'm curious. And she says, well, I'm in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, but there's just, there's a lot of really hard stuff in here. Which I think what she really meant was there's stuff in here that doesn't agree with my personal theology at the moment. And I don't know what to do with it. Her statement that caught me off guard was, I don't have my commentaries with me. So I'm thinking about going home to get them. And this isn't, this isn't a terrible idea. I'm not against commentaries. But this poor woman felt stuck in her ability to study the scriptures on her own. And I feel like these are two attacks that are coming at the Bible through culture today. And one is that, that it is irrelevant to me, that it doesn't apply to my life. And the other is that it's too much for me to handle. And when we get like that, our tendency is to run away from those stresses, right? How do you even begin to climb a mountain? And so both of these are things that lead us away from the scripture. I want to address them today, but... Um, probably a little bit more. 
So what do you believe about the Bible? Sorry, don't look at this. It's cheating. Don't look at that yet. What do you believe about the Bible? Before anything that I say today, you need to know what your beliefs are because it's going to change the way you approach it. It changes everything about your life, how you view the scriptures. Now, we as a church hold to this statement, which I'm sure because you're here, you obviously agree word for word and could tell me it without it being on the screen. As a church, we have said we believe that the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament and New Testament, 66 books in total, are the verbally inspired word of God, the final authority for faith in life. Inerrant in their original writings, infallible, and God-breathed. We believe that the biblical narrative shapes our faith and lives of Christians, as well as the mission of the church. And I know this seems like a lot. I'm actually going to try to go through most of this statement today. The part that I'm not going to go through is about the mission of the church. That's the next five weeks. But I'm not, we're not going to just word for word. I don't, I don't, I don't. I've got something better for you. Um, and that is the Bible. Because I really believe that if we're going to talk about the Bible, we need to understand even how it talks about itself. So this is from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I've highlighted three important phrases we're going to cover today. By God, profitable, and that. You're welcome. So first, as God's present of the Bible, by God. By God is such a powerful statement here that, that you could unpack for years. And I don't mean that lightly. There are huge debates over what he meant by breathed out by God. But I'm going to just, we're going to just, sorry, we're going to walk through it. First of all, let me point out two things about this present. First of all, it is infinitely valuable. This is from Psalm 119, which if you haven't read, Psalm 119 is beautiful. Psalm 119 is essentially a love poem written by David to the Bible. And it's convicting to me. But he writes this, Open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of the, your law. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold or silver pieces. Verse 72 and verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I had the privilege of discipling two, three uh, young men over the summer at camp, uh, meeting with them regularly, checking in with them, seeing how they're doing in their growth, see if there are any things that they need advice on, help on, biblical counsel. And two of them were really struggling with the idea of even starting to study the Bible, had never done it in their life. And I found myself saying something that maybe you can relate to. I said, well, listen, um, if you're going to start reading the Bible, um, I would advise you to go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are really good, like narrative of Jesus. It's his story. It's his teaching. So it's super good. It's super concentrated. Man, the, the New Testament epistles are pretty easy. You can sit down and, and read through them pretty quickly. Um, I love Genesis, 
Exodus, the first half is pretty good, and then it gets kind of into some like laws, and it's hard to read, and Leviticus, you know, and, then, and it's just difficult. Joshua judges Ruth, man, great stuff. First thing is Samuel, right? We just fly through. And, and, and I said this to both of them. And then I got to this verse, and my heart shattered. How much of the Bible did David have? How many books? Out of the 66, how many did he have? Five. He had five books. We assume that Joshua and Judges were probably written by Samuel, which, so there's a chance that those two might have been there. But like he was living for Samuel. That was his life. And so sometimes we look at Psalm 119 and we're like, man, look at all that there. No, it wasn't all of this that he was talking about. And so when he came and said, oh God, how I love your law, how I love your Bible, he was talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The very books that I said, just wait to read those because they're, they're tough. And I don't think I'm changing my mind that they're tough books. But shame on us if any part of the Bible is is not worth reading. Looking at Leviticus, he said, man, I just can't get enough of this. Because it's worth more than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Now, there has to be a reason why it carries that much weight, right? It, and it, it, it is. There is a very good reason. It is because it is divinely given. It, it's because of who it came from that the Bible is so infinitely valuable. We just read this one, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. There are two things in all of the scripture that are said to be breathed out by God. The first was at the pinnacle of creation when he made man, he breathed into him the breath of life so that he became a living being. The piece of creation that God took the greatest joy in creating was breathed out by him. And the second is, is the Bible. All scripture. And that's a really hard concept to get around, get our minds around. In fact, I like the way that Peter phrased it a little bit better, um, just because I think it gives you more to grip onto. He said, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We have more prophecy today than Moses did to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first of all. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Nobody's just sitting down and making this stuff up. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I think this is beautiful because it means that when we read the Bible, there's different, there's different types of literature. There's genres in there. You know, not everybody sat down and wrote the law, right? David sat down and he wrote poetry. Paul sat down and wrote extensive arguments and counter-arguments, and he was a very logical thinker. 
Peter spoke truth. That's about all I can say on him. He just, over and over again. But God inspired these men. God gave the words to these men so that they would write it down in their own personalities, in their own way. But it came from God. Now, something like that we can't take for granted. So we have to have some sort of perspective on the Bible. There has to be a way that we view it, and that has to translate into some other things. Our perspective should be that it's profitable. When we look at it, we should see that it is good for something. It's not just the book that we leave on the shelf until Sunday morning, and then it goes with us to the church, and we open it up, and, we clo- and then it's back on the shelf. And I feel like since the invention of Bible apps, that even is a little shadier because we don't even take it off the shelf anymore. It's just pull out the phone and there it is. Apps only opened once a week, but, you know, who's counting? Let me give you two warnings for your perspective. The first is it can be taken too lightly. This is, I'm going to have to walk through a few steps here. So stay with me. The Sadducees came and questioned Jesus one day. And they said, if a woman gets married and her husband dies and she marries again and that husband dies and she gets married again and that husband dies and so on and so forth down the line. And she gets married seven times. And all of them die. In the resurrection, therefore, Of the seven, whose wife will she be? For she had all of them. But Jesus answered, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now that might not strike you in and of itself. But I want you to understand who the Sadducees were. See, the Sadducees were a religious sect of Judaism. One of the leading groups Like, of of the two philosophies that ran things, it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were actually in charge of certain things at the temple at that point in time, which included taking care of the scriptures. The Old Testament passed through their hands every day. But somehow the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them. This is from Acts 13. And I think there's a profound statement that isn't made about the Sadducees. I think there's something that we can glean from this that isn't directly stated. And that is this. Even though the Sadducees had the Bible in their hands and read it every day, the Pharisees did something that they didn't. The Pharisees acknowledged these things. See, the Sadducees weren't reading a different text. But when they got to the parts that didn't sit right with them, they said, that must mean something different. We can interpret that a different way. That's not meant to be taken literally. If you approach the Bible looking for it to fit your philosophy and theology, you'll find it. But that doesn't mean that you're really understanding the scriptures. The second is that it can be twisted. These aren't my words. Peter said this in in 
2 Peter 3.16, as Paul writes in his letters when he speaks on these matters. There are some things in his letters that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable, the ignorant and unstable, twist to their own destruction, as they do with the other scriptures. Notice that it's not always malicious that scriptures get twisted. Don't picture that this is some person far off from you who is coming to the Bible and saying, let's see what I can make it say. How can I make people upset today by ripping this verse out of context? It's not this malicious thing. It's out of ignorance. It says people come to these hard passages that Paul has written and they say, I don't really understand, so we're going to just change some things around. And that seems like a... That, I, I'm okay with that. That's a good meaning. Specifically, chapter 2, Peter here talks about people who have taken the words of Paul and said, it's okay to live in sin once you're saved. You're, you're already under Christ's forgiveness. It's okay to sin. And they take this concept of freedom from sin and say, man, we're safe. You get to do what you want now. Isn't that great? And they twist it. They almost have it, and then they miss it. And it's out of ignorance. He warns against false teachers who do it purposefully to gain a following. Guys, the Bible is not just always going to be perfectly interpreted. I get that, right? Like it's, there are people who are not going to do it well. So those are your two, two warnings. Here's your admonitions. These are, these are how you stay clear of those faults. Number one is study well. And I don't mean go and buy a commentary so that you make sure that you know what the Bible says. I mean you do the hard work of lifting. Second Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. If you come to this without wanting to try, you are not going to handle it well. If you come to it looking for what you believe, you are not going to handle it rightly. So what does it look like? Uh, well, you guys have heard this illustration several times from Pastor John, but I want to point it out to you in the scripture. And that's from Acts 17, 10 and through 12. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, which is great because the Jews in Thessalonica... Can I get some water, Rachel? Can you... Thessalonica were trying to kill Paul and Silas. So like... Very small difference, right? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. So hear what's being said here. He's not saying, listen, these people came and they just accepted the words of Paul and Silas. He's not saying a preacher got up in front of them and said, this is what you need to believe. And they went, yes, that's good. What he's saying is every time that Paul spoke, they went, mm, let me go and check that out. Hold on, I'll be back. And they would read the, the, the Old Testament daily. And they'd come back to him and be like, look, I, I can't prove you wrong. So tell me more. 
And he'd tell them more, and they were like, mm, hold on one second. And over and over again, daily, they were in the scriptures to know if what Paul was saying to them was true. And what I think is more powerful is the next statement. Many of them, therefore, believed. They didn't believe because Paul was a dynamic speaker. They believed because they could not prove him wrong. They studied the Bible well. And they tried to prove him wrong. So this is my challenge to you in two weeks when John gets back here. I want you to try to prove him wrong. Um, not for the next two weeks. That's... Anytime we get up here and speak to you and say, this is what the Bible is saying, you should be in those passages trying to prove us wrong. And if you can't do it, there we go. You've got the good word. That's when you believe. A second one is be correctable. And these two are kind of hard to hold hand in hand, right? Because if, if we're doing study well and I'm confident in what my knowledge says about the Bible, then the pride of that can sometimes get in the way of being correctable. But let me show you a really cool example in humility. This is, this is back in 2 Peter, right? Written by Peter, right? He says, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Okay, I know this is super profound, and you guys, are, bear with me. Short story, ready? Second Peter 3 starts out with Peter saying, hey, I am so happy to write to you again. Right, so that tells us what he's written before. So we go and we look at 1 Peter, and it starts out to the exiles in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. Guys, I've lost it. Teens, correct me. No? Okay. It's all right. We got to the important one. What letter was written to Galatia? Galatians. Do you guys remember when we were just reading through that and we got to chapter, I think, three and four, where uh, Paul spends a third of his letter writing about a discourse that he had with Peter correcting him? Paul calls him out on not living the way he's supposed to, not holding to the theology that he should. And Peter's response isn't, yeah, I guess you're right, and we're just going to brush that under the rug. Instead, he comes back and he says, hey, guys, you know that letter that Paul wrote to you? Really read it because it's good stuff. Yeah, yeah, I know that he corrects me in it, but it's so good. Like, do you understand the amount of humility that it took for Peter to say those words? Not only am I okay with being corrected, but I am glad when it happens. And look at, oh, fast. Why are we going fast? Send it Timothy with me again. Look at the words that it uses. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training. I don't know how many of you guys like doing like physical training, prepping for sports and things. I hate it. I can't stand training. Like I know it's for a good purpose, but in the moment I'm miserable. I'm not particularly fond of reproof or correction. But Paul says, look, guys, the scripture is good for these things that we don't like but make us better. 
And so when you have someone come to you and say, listen, your theology is askew. And they show you in the scriptures, you should be ready to take that and, and learn from it. So yes, stand firm on what you know is true, but also be willing to learn from others. Like I said, hard balance, right? That's why God gave us the body so that we could support each other in it. And all of this is built on God's purpose. That. Like I said, that's a great word here. Really, most of the time, we would probably say so that in today's culture, because that just sounds odd on its own. You can't even really use it in a sentence without it sounding like something it isn't. But I love it. I love these small words in the Bible sometimes, because they they just change how you read through a text. What this one word tells me is that God had a very specific reason for giving the Bible. It wasn't just to sit there. It was to be used. He wanted us to have it. And I'm going to give you four reasons why. First of all, so that your conduct can be changed. James 1, through 25 says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Sometimes Rachel tells me that things need to happen. Like small things, right? Like we need to get that trash taken out. And I hear it. And sometimes I don't do anything about it. Um, sometimes I forget. Sometimes it's just, it slips by me. Sometimes I prioritize other things. And that doesn't speak very good volumes of, of my love for my wife, right? Same thing with God. Don't just listen to the words he says, but actually do them. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and then goes away at once and forgets what he looks like. If I got up this morning... And my bedhead, it gets bad, um, was all spiked. And I looked in the mirror and I went, oh, that looks bad. And I walked out of the bathroom and I moved on with life. And I got here and I'm in front of you all. What, what, do you, what are you all going to notice? <laughs> there is a glaring issue with me. And I might be just blissfully unaware. I might have forgotten about the problem that I saw in that mirror. But man, the people around me notice. When God is stirring up things inside of you that need correction in your life as you study the Bible, you can't just ignore it. It is glaringly obvious to the people around you. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, stays with it. Notice that he doesn't say who reads it, and it's easy and short, and you're done. Right? I did my three minutes of Bible study for the day. I'm a good Christian who does the hard work of sticking with it, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Do you want to be blessed by God in your life? The answer is to listen to his spirit as he speaks through the word. And I love, this is a short homiletics class right here. From 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, Peter says, But as he who called you is holy, 
you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, he says, here's my basis for my argument. You ready for it? You shall be holy, for I am holy. I don't know. I love it, guys. I, I feel like there's meant to be this big argument built up, and he's literally like verbatim. Like same, same words. Right, guys? Listen, it's simple. Be holy because God's holy. And if you want to know why, it's because God said, be holy for, for I am holy. It's meant to change our lives. This might, this might be old hat to a lot of you, but I'm going to throw it out there because I feel like tangible is good. Every time that I study the Bible with the teens, there are two questions that I end the night with. And those questions are as follows. Number one, what is the passage saying? And if I look at a passage of scripture and I say, it's saying, Andrew needs to, I've already messed up. Because unless I'm in the Gospels, because there actually is an Andrew there, nothing is being said to Andrew directly. The Bible is not making a statement to Andrew. The truth is not about me when I come to this. The truth is the truth. But so what's the truth that stands out to you from this? And then after that, second question, also majorly important, how does it apply to my life today? And if we came to this passage and I asked the teens that, what truth do you see here? And their answer is very clearly, be holy. And I said, okay, great. So how does that apply to you? And their answer was, I should be holy. Technically right. But it doesn't hit where they need to be holy. For me, it's Andrew needs to control his anger around his kids. I mean, Andrew needs to control his anger, but especially not raise his voice at his kids. Right? It's taking that be holy, be like God, and finding the truth for today in my life. And that application is not always going to be the same. The truth is, the truth is always going to stand. But the application should hit me differently, and my life should be changed because of it. And man, that's offensive. It is offensive to be told that I need to change. And it should be. And I should change anyways. Because it's not about God coming in and, and ripping us out of the things that we enjoy. God gave us the Bible for us to be freed from sin. Hear the words carefully. Not to be cleansed from sin, although that is also part of it. But to be freed from it. Right? Second Peter one, three, and four say his divine power is granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So those things that you hold so dearly that you hide behind, that you make sure no one ever sees those secret sins that you keep inside of you, just lead to corruption and destruction. And God has something better for you. He wants you to be a partaker of the divine nature. He wants you to experience God's power in your life. And you can't do that if you are holding on to sin. 
Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days, all of the Old Testament was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. God didn't give us the Bible so that we were weighed down by it. He gave us it so that we could experience hope and freedom through Christ. He also gave it for our lives to be guided. And maybe some of you aren't so concerned about this, but even at 29, I'm kind of, you know, I want to know that I'm where I'm supposed to be. I ask the question a lot in, in college of how do I know God's will? <laughs> Is it just going to divinely strike me one day and boom, I'm going to have it? Psalm 119 Again, can't get away from there. 9 through 11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? Now, I've heard this verse used so many times to talk about sexual purity, and I'm not saying that that is a bad application. But it's so much more. How can a young man stay in the plan that God has for him by guarding it according to your word, Lord? With my whole heart I will seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. One of the most profound statements ever given to me about the will of God was this. Are you sinning? Like, are you actively in sin? Because if you are, and you're wondering if you're in God's will, the answer is no. And the second question along with that is, are you pursuing to use the gifts he's given you for his glory? And that's, that's it. That is my, my pastoral advice for you for finding the will of God in your life. If there are sins that you're not willing to let go of, you're not. So let go of them. And then pursue God. And back, back in West Virginia, the question was, do I, do I stay here? Do I go and find another job in the area? Do I go to a camp down in Tennessee? Do I go to Michigan, to this church that hasn't contacted me back? Guys, I was stressed. Um, <laughs> do I work at the college that I graduated from that I really, I don't know that I could stay there long. How do I know which of these things is the will of God? Well, God closed the doors that should be closed. I'm going to trust that you have my best in plan, and that if I follow where you have gifted me, I'll find where I'm supposed to be. Man, it was crazy and wild, and I went to Tennessee, and it was a mess. I still think it was God's will for me to be there, but it was just a mess. He was just holding me back a little bit until I was ready to be here with you guys. But guys, it's, a, it's about following the gifts he has given you. And you find out about those things through the word. You find out about those things through the church. And then you go with confidence. That's it. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God wants you to know where to walk. Not just to stumble around in darkness. And then fourth is this, for us to see Christ. Luke 24, 25 through 27, this is after Christ has risen from the grave. Speaking to his disciples, he said, O foolish ones, 
I love how kindly he speaks to them all the time. Guys, you're, and you're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Wrong way. And beginning, hear the words of this, right? And Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. Like, Genesis is important to Jesus. Leviticus is important to Jesus, so important to Jesus, in fact. If you don't understand the sacrificial system set up in Leviticus, then you don't understand why Christ had to die. And you're also missing out on the fact that you're now a priest. All through the scripture, Jesus showed them where he was. I feel like it was a little bit like a game of Where's Waldo? But we were given the Bible to know Christ. And so I hope that's true of you today. I hope you know Christ. I hope that you've met him and, and experienced what it is to have his forgiveness in your life. And, and to be able to experience what that divine nature is for the first time. If you haven't, I would love to have a conversation with you afterwards. I know that probably sounds a little threatening. Sorry, let me try what's a better wording. I would love to share with you afterwards what God has done in my life. And I would love to show you from the Bible who he was. And if you have experienced that, then guys, go and share it with others. Don't be ashamed of this powerful word that came from God, breathed out from him for you. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you took the time to know us and to give us a way to know you. I thank you that in spite of us not having any right to know you, God, you still loved us enough to write a letter to us. God, help us to see it for what it's worth. Help our lives to be changed by it. And help us to build in this church on the foundation that is your word. Pray this all in your name. Amen.